0: My main purpose today is to introduce Luke Minema, uh, my nephew, and more importantly than that, my friend, and uh, second-time speaker here at High Ground. Luke is married to Janet. They have four beautiful kids, and they live in Basalt, Colorado, just outside of Aspen. And uh, he is a pastor at church there, and uh, I was talking to him about the benefits of the being the pastor of the Basalt Church, and he said his elder board feels it's very important that he ski all the time, so they they fund his ski pass to Aspen, so uh, anyway. <laughs> and uh, Luke is accompanied by his dad, uh, Brent Minema, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, great guy, and uh, he can still ski with some of his grandchildren, but they're passing him quickly. So let's welcome Luke, thank you. All right. Well, thanks for having me back. Uh, It's always fun and encouraging to get the first invitation to speak somewhere, but when you get the second invitation to come back the next year, that's when uh, you really... Uh, Feel welcomed and included. Yeah, sorry. And I've got this kind of froggy voice going. Sorry about that. I do have four kids. And so someone in our house has been coughing for a decade. And it's my turn today to be kind of working through it. So sorry about that. But no, I really am uh, enjoying getting to know this group. It's an incredible group of guys that you've compiled over the years. And uh, a lot of people who have been coming for decades and new people every year. And um, yeah, it's, it's just a privilege to be a part of it and a privilege to open the word with you this morning. Before we jump into that, though, I don't know if you've ever heard the name Hiru Onoda. Anybody know that name? Hiru Onoda. Do you know the name? No, I can't even, I'm not even saying it right, I'm sure. He was a Japanese soldier during World War II. And uh, he died a few years ago in about 2014. He was 91. And what made him famous, and the reason you may know his story, even if you don't know his name, is because for everyone around the world, soldiers, generals, world leaders, nations, World War II ended on September 2nd, 1945, when the Japanese officially signed surrender documents on the deck of the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. And so for the vast majority of the world, the war lasted about six years. You know, Some nations got in late, so let's call it four to six for everybody, but not Hiro. Does anyone know how long Hiro's World War II lasted? Anybody got a guess? A long time. He was one of the last Japanese holdouts, the second last Japanese holdout, actually. He fought his personal World War II for the next 30 years, okay? So he fought in his own World War II until 1974, three full decades. He was a intelligence officer who was sent to the Philippines to kind of go into deep cover in the jungle and and give reconnaissance, right? Send info back to the troops at home. But when the war ended... He got separated from his uh, units, and when they all got picked up and taken prisoner, he was still out there by himself in the jungle, and without, any, without orders to surrender and without the knowledge that the Japanese had surrendered, he wasn't about to give it up, so he just stuck it out, for the next 30 years. He lived off the land, he stole food. Every once in a while, if locals would wander too close into the jungle near him, he'd treat them as enemy combatants. He would even kill them every once in a while. They would regularly send folks into the jungle looking for him and try to talk him down, but he wasn't having any of it. They would drop leaflets out of the, the sky and you know he'd spend his time examining them and, and then he was convinced, no, this is propaganda. This can't be true, I'm sticking. To my mission. In an interview a few years before he died, Hiru said, I became an officer and I received an order and if I could not carry it out, I would feel shame. And then he paused and then he added, and I'm very competitive. Okay, yeah, no kidding. He stuck the World War II out for 30 years. Nothing would convince him that he wasn't fighting in a war. Except one thing, okay? There's one thing that finally convinced him to come back home, and it was an encounter with a very specific person. It wasn't until his former commanding officer trekked into the jungle and found him and personally relieved him of duty that he handed over his samurai sword, and there's a picture of him in his, in his 30-year-old uniform, all raggedy, handing over his sword and finally laying down arms. But it took an encounter with the one person he trusted and the one person whose voice and presence carried authority in his life, all right? And that is what brought him back home and, and brought him back out of the jungle. It was that meeting that brought Hiru back to reality, we could say. All right, you see, it's not that Hiru Onoda was an evil person. He wasn't an insane person. He was trying to be a good man and live an honorable life. He just wasn't living in reality, right? He was living in the wrong story. There was the way the world really was over here, and in the real world, in the truth, World War II is over, The Allies had won, there was no need for military intelligence of enemy movements in the Philippines because there were no enemies in the Philippines anymore. Okay, this is reality. And then over here, parallel to reality, in a different world, is where Hiru lived. In a world where he still thought he was fighting a war that didn't actually exist, he was living in the wrong story. And since he was living in the wrong story, he had the wrong identity, okay? He wasn't actually a soldier anymore, not really, but he was living as if he was one. He had the wrong mission. There was no need for the intelligence that he spent his days gathering. That The mission was wrong. That purpose didn't actually exist anymore. Wrong identity, the wrong mission, and he had the wrong relationships. When he engaged with the locals there, he thought that their relationship was something that it actually wasn't. They weren't actually enemies anymore. Not really. He was disconnected from the truth for a huge part of his life, and it took an encounter with a very specific person to bring him back home. Well, I want to spend our time this morning thinking about our worship, okay? About worshiping God. And I think Hiru's story, what happened to him 30 years after World War II actually ended, is very instructive for us as we think about worshiping God. Because true Christian worship, it turns out, is an encounter with the one person who can bring us back into reality, isn't it? Worship is encountering the voice and the presence of the one who brings us out of our false stories and into the truth. This is what happens when we worship Christ at church. This is what happens when we worship Christ here at at High Ground. This is what happens when we put the flaps down and we sit in his presence and, and with him in his word and receive his promises. This is what happens We we have an opportunity to be invited back into reality, to re-enter the true story of the world and leave behind the false stories that so many of us are living. Now, I trust that you're not spending your days running around in a jungle fighting a war that doesn't exist. If that is true of you, please talk to me afterwards. But we're all living false stories. Right? We're all all believing something that, that isn't true. Like, some of us believe we're far more important than we actually are. How does anything get done without us in the room, right? Some of us believe we're far less important and loved and valued than we actually are. What do we have to offer to any conversation or any relationship or any church? Some of us believe we can manage and plan and control the circumstances of our lives with far greater power than we actually can. We don't live these false realities because we're evil people trying to sabotage our own lives. We don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I live a lie today? That's not how we start our days, and yet we still do. If we're living the wrong story, if we're not living in reality, it's just not going to work in the long run. Uh, T.S. Eliot once wrote that half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important, okay? They don't mean to do harm, he says, but harm doesn't interest them, or they don't, they don't see it, or they justify it because they're absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. So Half the harm in the world just because we want to think well of ourselves. And, and it's worship that brings us out of that false story and brings us back home into reality, this encounter with Christ. It restores us. It brings spiritual sanity. So if you have your Bible with you or if you have a phone or something and you want to look at the passage that we're going to look at this morning, open to Isaiah 6. So Jason set me up last night uh, because we haven't talked about anything in a year, and yet the passage that he started with last night is the passage that we're going to look at this morning because that's just how God puts things together sometimes, isn't it? So Isaiah 6, and we're going to look at this famous encounter when Isaiah was brought into an encounter with God that changed his life and um, brought him back into reality. I'm gonna read the first eight verses. is Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me, is the word of the Lord. Isaiah shows us that encountering God in worship moves us back into reality, in three important ways. So, what I wanna look at in the remainder of our time. Worship brings us into the reality of God's bigness. Worship brings us into the reality of God's holiness. And then worship brings us back to the reality of God's kindness to us. All right, when you read through this encounter, the first thing that jumps out is just how big God is, just how big and looming and large he is on his throne and how small Isaiah is, and how small we are as well. We do not interact with God as equals, okay? You do not call up the king of creation. You don't wander into his throne room on a whim. You're ushered in. Or when he chooses to communicate with us, it's like a mom or a dad getting down on all fours and then laying on their belly so they can see eye to eye with their infant kids. That's how God communicates to us, he stoops down, that's reality. He's so great and so vast and powerful. Isaiah says, the leftovers of his robe fill the largest building Isaiah would ever see in his life. The train of his robe filled the temple. So the hem of his garment, I don't know what the largest building is that we encounter. The hem of God's garment fills Jerry World or your NFL stadium of choice, right? I mean, he is large and big, he's overwhelmingly great. And in comparison, we're very small, and actually very weak, and very needy, and very powerless. And this is a reality that we often forget. We we live in a, a parallel world to this truth so often. The Bible's not saying we're worthless, it's not saying we're unlovable, it says the very opposite, but it's very clear that we're small in God's presence. James calls our life a mist. That appears for a moment and then vanishes. The psalmist calls our life a handbreadth, just a few inches long, on a line that extends into eternity either direction. That's reality. And you know what? It turns out that living in that reality is actually very good for us. Okay, and the, the alternative is is not very good for us. One of the, the stories I think we easily slip into, especially in our modern individualistic, me-first, consumeristic, authentic, self-America, is that our life is actually mostly about us, that we're the main character in our story. We assume our goals are what matter the most, that we're in control of our future, and we call the shots. I, I pastor a church in Basalt, Colorado, as Andy said, and it's this little mountain town, and it's the middle of a valley. And at one end of the valley is Aspen, which sits at the base of Independence Pass. And at the other end of the valley is Glenwood Springs, which used to be called Defiance Colorado. And so we are trying to do ministry in a place that's literally bounded by independence and defiance. (laughs) And that's the culture. I mean, it's extreme out here on the western slope of Colorado, but that's everywhere, isn't it? All of us are living in this world of independence and defiance. We slip into believing that the story about ourselves is we're big enough and strong enough to arrange the circumstances of our lives and that we own the rights to our own future. But it turns out that story isn't very good for us, that that, that it's actually not very healthy for us. Here's an example. You know what anger needs to really thrive and grow? Anger needs the assumption that we can control the circumstances in our lives effectively. So my wife and I, we have four children, as I said, and we had our first about 11 years ago. He's 11 now. He'll turn 12 this year. And he's a gift, and we love him, and he was the first grandchild in the whole side of our family. And so um, he got a ridiculous amount of attention from this guy and everyone else. And, you know, it was just a blast. But this weird thing started happening when we had our first child. Janet and I started getting mad at each other, like out of the blue. And then we'd get mad at this little three-month-old that couldn't control anything he did. And we're not angry people. And so we started asking, like, what's going on? Why Why is anger all of a sudden the response that's coming out of our hearts? And it turns out this is what was going on. We thought we owned the rights to things that we didn't own the rights to. We thought we could control things that we couldn't. We thought that we deserved to sleep through the night. It turns out you don't deserve to sleep through the night. You don't own that right, yeah? We thought we owned the rights to our time and our money and our energy, and when those things started being taken away at whim by a four-month-old, the response was we got mad. We got angry, because that's the soil that anger needs to grow in, is uh, this assumption that we can control what's going on. In the same way, you know what anxiety and worry need to grow in the human heart. They need the assumption that that you need to live in the story that you might just be able to control enough circumstances and manage enough outcomes and scenarios to make life work how we want it to work. But that false story, it just breeds anxiety. It just breeds fear. What if I can't hold it together this week? What if I can't control the outcomes this month? What if things come up that I can't control? What if, what if, what if? It turns out the story of living between independence and defiance, is not very good for us, not very healthy for us. On the other hand, you know what you need? You know what grows patience and gentleness? You know what grows the ability to endure life's chaotic circumstances with hope? And with joy, you know what a restful spirit and a peaceful heart need to thrive in the human heart? It needs the truth. It needs the real story of the world. What those characteristics need to grow and thrive is the reality that we are minor characters in another person's story and that that person is so big that he can actually hold together all the threads of our life that we could never hold together on our own. It it needs the story that this whole world is actually about King Jesus, and not only can he hold those things together, but he's good, and he's looking out for us, and he's for us, and we serve a king that can actually bring us out of the false story and back into reality and restore us and bring us home. I am small, and God is very, very big. What great news, right? What great news. He is so big. And it's worship that leads us there. It's an encounter with the one person who can bring us back into reality. We're changed, we're healed by relearning our life is actually about him. That's the first thing. This next two are slightly shorter. Here's the other characteristic of reality that looms large in this passage. We're small, God is great. Also, God is holy and we are not. All right, let me read a couple of these verses again. Above him, above God, in his throne room stood the seraphim, these angels. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now the seraphim, they live in the presence of God all the time. So they don't really have the option of living in a false story, right? They're they're encountered by reality every moment of their life. And you know what they do with their lives? They spend their entire existence just speaking the truth back to each other over and over and over again. And they declare the glory and the beauty of the one who this whole story is actually about. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, one of the main ways that the authors emphasize something is by repeating it. And so we come to Psalm 130, and the psalmist writes, my soul waits for the Lord like a watchman for the morning, like a watchman for the morning. He's underlining it. He's highlighting it. He's italicizing it so that we catch it and we sit in it. Uh, He doubles the phrase to emphasize his point. There are many doubles in the Bible there's only one triple, okay? There's only one place where the author repeats something three times. Only one word is applied to one person that's so true and real and deep that it gets a three-peat, and it's right here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the Hebrew way of saying holiness is his deepest characteristic, His righteousness, his justice, his love, his generosity, his kindness, it all flows out of his holy, perfect character. And when Isaiah even gets in the presence of such holiness, he's so deeply convicted of his own unholiness and his sin, his confession just pours out immediately, woe is me, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The most natural thing to do in the world when you encounter the reality of God's holiness is to confess, it's to repent, it's to declare our neediness before him. I'm undone, I'm caught, I have no excuse. You are holy, I am not. Now in the everyday hum of life when we're running carpool and keeping up on email and making calls and, uh, you know, taking care of sick kids, whatever your days are made up of, it's easy to slip into this alternate reality and convince ourselves that, you know what, we're, we're actually doing okay. And, and this is especially easy when, when we compare ourselves horizontally to one another and not vertically to God. But, but it's easy to kind of think, no major sin to confess. You know, I'm, I'm pretty much just, we're pretty much just good guys trying to do good things and we're good people trying, trying to extend, you know, goodness to others. But is that true? I mean, is that true? Like in the privacy of our own thoughts when we don't have to posture and perform for anybody at 3 a.m. when we wake up, do we believe deep down we're really, really good people. Or do we have a, an inkling that something's wrong in there? HBO has this series called True Detective. I don't know if anybody has seen it or not. It can be a little dark and disturbing. So um, I probably really shouldn't be recommending it in a sermon. So I'm not recommending. I'm citing, okay? <laughs> See what I did there? Uh <laughs> But it's very well done, (laughs) and it might be worth your time. Season one was great. Season two, not so much. Season three got me back. In season one, Matthew McConaughey plays this Louisiana detective named Russ Cole, and he gets a reputation in the department as the go-to interrogator. He can get a confession out of anybody. And uh, he explains his method. He explains his philosophy of human nature. He says, look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everyone wants a cathartic uh, narrative for their lives, the guilty especially, and everybody's guilty, okay? Matthew McConaughey is speaking the reality that Isaiah is experiencing when he encounters the holy and the living God. Our false stories get put to rest. We have wronged God and wronged one another, and we've been found out. Aren't you glad you got out of bed early this morning? and are passing on the first chairlift to hear this. Point one, you're smaller than you think. Point two, you're worse off than you think too. Let's close in prayer. No, just kidding. Point three, what happens next in Isaiah's worship experience is what makes the story of Christianity not only true, it's not only the real story of the world, but it makes it lovely. Okay, it makes it good. It makes it attractive. It makes it compelling, not just true, but life-giving and full of hope and joy because worship not only brings him to the reality of God's bigness and the reality of God's holiness, but worship brings Isaiah and us into the reality of God's kindness. Verse six, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and he said, behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for, Isaiah confesses the sin of his lips, and then God touches his lips to bring atonement to the very place where he needs it the most. This God, this God of truth, this God of reality, the God of the Bible, he goes to the very place of our guilt not to shame us or to mock us or to punish us, but to heal us with his presence, right? He he treks into the jungle, into our darkness, and finds us, not to leave us there or to reprimand us, but to bring us back home. And restore us. The false story that we so often inhabit is that we, if we just have enough time or energy or if we just try the right combination of discipline or the right guilt management system, we can work our way through our problems, right? We can right the wrong. If there's a guy's mantra, it's give me a second, I can fix this. We can undo what we did and try to not do it again, but we can't. We're lost. And the beauty of the gospel story The gracious way that God interacts with small and sinful people like us is that even though the reality is we're worse off than we think, the deeper reality is we're far more loved than we can even imagine. God doesn't use his greatness to crush us. He meets us and guides our life back to him. He doesn't use his holiness to exclude us or punish us, but to take our sins onto himself and create a path to invite us back into his family again. And the path to this rescue, the way back home into this family, the offer of forgiveness and grace is only possible through an encounter with one very specific person. We're not going to find our way home alone. We won't want to. We'll investigate the pamphlets. We'll, we'll hear the accounts. We'll take analysis and we'll think, no, 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 this grace thing this can't be how the world works. This is a scam. This is a trick until we meet the one who has come to look for us and to convince us that it's real because we trust his voice and he carries the authority that we can hear and we can follow until we encounter his bigness, his holiness, his kindness of Jesus, the words of grace and promise. And unlike Hiru, where he only needed that encounter one time, We need that encounter every day, and Jesus is looking for us, he's pursuing us. So hear his words of kindness this morning to you in his word, trust his voice, and this weekend, and, and as we go back home, as we go back to our families, worship Jesus, make yourself available to the encounter, to encountering the one who can bring you back to the truth, to his kindness and his grace and bring you back home. All right, let me close this in prayer and let's get skiing. Jesus, thank you for being the one that our souls are actually crying out for and longing for. We need your voice in our life. We need you to bring us out of the false stories and the lies that we believe and back into the truth of who you are, what you've done for us, and all the gifts and the promises that have come pouring out of heaven through you on our behalf. Help us worship you and encounter you this week and every week to come. We ask these things in your name, amen.